Father, we thank you that we have a song to sing. A song of your greatness and your glory and your goodness. And we ask this day that through your word, through these words, that that song would rise up in us afresh. That we might be freed to sing it boldly. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is the first Sunday of the season of Advent, the season that opens the church year and begins another journey through the church calendar. Now, the church calendar, if you're not familiar with it, is, is, is simply a way of telling time by the rhythm of the gospel. From beginning to end, it tells the story of who God is and what he has done through Christ as we go through a whole year. And you might think then that it would make sense to start with Jesus' birth. But that's not actually where the church year starts because it's not where the story starts. The story starts with the time of making ready, a time of making room. Advent is fundamentally a season of preparation, a season of getting ready for the coming of Christ, getting ready for his first coming, getting ready for his second coming, and getting ready for him to come afresh and anew in our hearts. Think of Advent like a a clearing of the decks to make way. That's why the major characters of Advent are Isaiah and his prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. Uh, Another major character is John the Baptist, right, who prepares the way for Jesus and his generation. But another one of those major characters is Mary. And this year at IAC, we're spending Advent focused on Mary. Now, back when I was in seminary, my church history professor was fond of saying that some parts of the church make too much of Mary, but Protestants make far too little of her. For example, there is no reason from the scriptures to believe that Mary is somehow a mediator between us and God or between us and Jesus. There's there's no reason to believe that she was miraculously conceived or was sinless herself or never had other children. Those, Those beliefs actually undercut the glory of what her story is meant to display, as we're going to see today in these next three weeks. But it's also true that Protestants make far too little of her. We've swung the pendulum back in the other direction and forgotten that Mary is the preeminent disciple. She is the template of what it means to receive the salvation, the rescue of God. She is our foundational model for the church, the bride of Christ. She is the primary example for every believer of what it means to welcome the life of Christ being born in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. She is uniquely what the early church called the Theotokos, the God-bearer. But she is the teacher of all of us who also long to bear the life of God within and offer him to the world. The story of the Annunciation or the angel's announcement to Mary is, is a beautiful, terrifying picture of what it means to welcome God's work in our lives what it means to receive the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. 
We don't know or hear anything about Mary until the angel Gabriel arrives on the scene and says in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, the angel's words have sometimes gotten a little bit twisted to mean that Mary was special before the angel ever walked in. But for all we can tell, she wasn't. Mary was probably about a 15-year-old peasant girl, lower middle class at best, betrothed to a tradesman at least 10 years her senior, preparing for her life as a Jewish woman in a patriarchal, politically oppressed society. She was a no one, heading for nothing special. Which is why what's happening makes no sense to Mary herself. It says in verse 29 that Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this must be. It wasn't that Gabriel got there and Mary's like, finally somebody paid attention to me. She's got nothing to offer. And it is simply God's choice that makes her more. It is God's initiative that brings favor upon her. It's simply and completely grace. That beautiful word that means undeserved, unearned favor in the eyes of God. Grace is what forgives us, adopts us as God's children, places us within his family, transforms us to become more like Christ, and invites us to participate in the healing of the world, not because we've earned it or deserved it, because just because the Father wants to. That's grace. And it's that grace that now envelops Mary, just because the Father wants to. Verse 30. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. What the angel is promising Mary is that God's promises laid out from the Garden of Eden to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and all his line, promises that a king is going to come and make all things new, make all things right again. Those promises are now coming to fruition in her, through her. The healing of heaven is seeping into the broken world, and, and, and she's at the poorest boundary. She's in the liminal space just because he wants to. And friends, in essence, uh, by analogy, this is the same gift offered to us who come into this story on the far side of that baby's sacrifice and vindication and enthronement. Christ, by his spirit, wants to come and make his home in us, wants us to be the bearers of his healing work to the world. It is the most extreme, outrageous idea that ever entered the realm of religion. It's nuts that we would become the home of God just because he wants to. Which is why Mary has questions, different questions than we have in our own reception of that news. But good questions nonetheless. She's not dumb. 
She knows how babies are made. This ain't it. But when she's told it's the Holy Spirit, the very power of God's personal presence that will make this happen, I am absolutely sure she does not intellectually grasp it. I'm absolutely sure she's not like, oh, that makes sense. Okay, got it. (laughs) There's nothing to intellectually grasp. It's beyond our human intellect. But she allows herself to be grasped by it. Verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. She stares grace in the face and surrenders. She succumbs to glory and lets the Almighty have his way in her life, knowing not all the cost, but at least a good part of it, knowing at least in part what this will do to her reputation, knowing at least in part what this means for her sense of control. And yet she relents which is all any of us are ever called to do because this is how salvation comes. This is how rescue comes. Salvation requires first and foremost a death. A death to our own plans. A death to our own dreams. A death to our sense of ownership and direction of ourselves. See, salvation is not God getting us where we want to go. As if, like, I've got this dream and I just need a little boost. Where we want to go, where we could have gone, is dust and ashes in the face of grace. Salvation is welcoming God to take us where He wants us to go, into something beyond our imagining, into human nature that is filled with divine life, into dust overflowing with divinity. But that death to self as real and as hard as it is, emerges eventually in a resurrection of joy. It's in losing our lives as we wish them to be that we find life as it's meant to be. And that joy is what we see emerging in Mary. She runs off to see her cousin Elizabeth, who has a miraculous pregnancy of her own. And in that meeting, in that sharing and reflecting and processing Out of her comes a song, a song that proves that, yes, Mary did know. That carol, Mary, did you know, it's so beautiful, it drives me crazy. (laughs) Like, I'm sure she was missing some specifics, but she totally knew that's the whole point of her song, right? She knew and she wanted others to know what God was up to here. Her song has come down to us under the title of the Magnificat, right? One of the words from the first line of a later Latin translation, my soul magnifies the Lord, some versions have it. It's a song very much like other songs of deliverance in the scriptures. Uh, We heard Hannah's read earlier from 1 Samuel, uh, but also Miriam's and Moses's. And so many of of, of the Psalms are similar because the primary characteristic of Mary's song, like all those songs of God's deliverance, is joy. 
overwhelming, deeply rooted joy that is not just a passing emotion, but a settled conviction. Because it is joy not at how she feels, joy not at what she can accomplish, because both those things, they like come in and come out. But joy at what God is doing. Joy at what God has done that is steady and secure. She's laser focused on what God is up to here. Verses 49 through 55, as soon as she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, everything else has God as the subject of the sentence. He is the one who's doing something. He is the one that is working. And and that absolutely wraps her up in praise. Now we also long for this kind of joy. And yet it seems so fleeting. This time of year, I think especially, this season with all the celebration and the shininess is often the hardest part of the year emotionally. Mental health difficulties often spike at this time of year, and there are lots of reasons for that, but but most of them boil down to the fact that the world isn't as it was meant to be, and no amount of tinsel or lights is going to be able to cover that over. So it might be tempting at this point in the sermon or at this point in the passage to say something like, man, if you want this joy, just ignore all those things that are going wrong and focus on God. But I want us to notice what Mary is focusing on when she focuses on God. Why is she joyful? Why is she so overjoyed? Because God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He has scattered the proud, brought down rulers from their thrones, and lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. Mary is staring all that is not as it should be, square in the face, the hunger, the humiliation, the arrogance, the inequalities, and right in those places, She sees God turning it all upside down in her child, in her story. What Mary is declaring here is not just God as an escape from all that's wrong with the world, but God as the disruptor of all that's wrong with the world. And that is a massive difference. She's declaring that in this child, there's a grand reversal that's coming for everything, a cosmic revolution that is bringing light to her darkness which is great news, wonderful news, glorious news. If you're on the bottom, if you're hungry, if you're humiliated and humbled, but if you're on the top, it's another story entirely. You see, when we read this song, as we follow Mary in this Advent season, we need to realize that the joy is only present in those places, in those people who know that they cannot find that joy on their own. In the places where we're content and put together and feel like we can pull it off and we don't want to ask for help, because we've got enough. In those areas, this is not good news at all. 
Because grace is a funny gift. It can only be opened and truly received when it doesn't feel like there's any other presence under the tree. It can only be truly welcomed when there's nothing else to fall back on. Because it's a gift that is so big, it insults our sense of personal dignity. It creates this relational dynamic that draws us into an ongoing dependence. So if there's a different kind of gift, we'll take that one instead. Maybe you've received some like massive gift and you see it and you think, oh, I, I, I couldn't possibly. Like it's too much. I don't deserve it. I, I, I can't accept that. Sometimes it turns into a like, did, did you think I couldn't like do this on my own? I don't want to have to owe you anything. I don't have to be beholden to you. I, I, I'm sure someone else needs it more. Grace only fills those who have a space carved out to receive it. If there's no empty cavity, if there's no empty womb, it cannot, does not conceive divine life. Perhaps another way to say it, the joy that we seek only rises as high as the depths of our need. They go together. And when I say need, I mean, I mean any kind of need. There's been a debate among Bible scholars for a couple generations now about whether the humility, the hunger Mary's talking about are physical or spiritual. In other words, is the Magnificat good news for the poor or the poor in spirit? Is it good news for those hungering and thirsting or those hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Yes. Friends, Mary was suffering under unjust regimes that taxed and oppressed and drove peasant girls like her deeper into poverty and hopelessness. She is thinking about that in this song. Jesus' coming is good news that those kind of oppressions, that kind of powerlessness and helplessness, it has a shelf life. It will not go on forever. Those among us who, who can't get their heads above water because of asylum status, or a lack of, of, of connections to the necessities of life, or, or just unjust authority figures who keep beating them down. For those people, the coming of Jesus is good news. Because someone sees, someone cares, someone knows, someone came to a girl just like them, and someone still comes to people just like them. Both by the Holy Spirit and in His body. If we want to be on the side of Mary in this song, we come alongside those who find themselves in those places. And we long and we hope and we work for the day when they will know the abundance of a world made new. But this grace is also good news for those who know their inward need, who know they need forgiveness, who know they need repentance who know they are crushed, counted out, don't have what it takes to make the world the way it's meant to be. This is good news for the desperate of heart. I was talking to someone the other day about the, the differences between two churches they had visited. And one, they said, was, was full of, of happy people 
who seemed like they had it all together, that, that struggled to express need, and as a result, they struggled to express joy. The other church, they said, was desperate. That's the word they used. And as they talked about that desperate church, they talked about the joy that went with that desperation and how being in their midst filled them with joy, even though people seemed more obviously broken. Friends, here at IAC, you not only have permission, you are urged to display the desperation. The church is a hospital, not a vacation hotel. You can make it known. You can make it public. You can shout it from the rooftops that you do not have what it takes, that you do not know in this situation or in this place what to do or where to go. Because we want to be the kind of people who sing the song of Mary, that God sees us, that God hears us, that God has come for us, that, that God is coming for all of us just because he wants to. We enter into that joy by making those needs known and asking him to fill them. You don't have to ignore that empty pit in your stomach. You can own it and ask God to make it into a womb where his life and joy and hope are conceived. Because that is what, by the power of the Spirit, in this revolution he is promising to do. And friends, if you aren't in that place, in that space. There is a, an, an, an invitation, an, an urgent plea here in the Magnificat and all throughout this season of Advent to get desperate, to get hungry, to wake up to that need that you've been stuffing down deep and not letting even yourself become aware of. Now, I know this is the opposite of how the world thinks, but we need to be wary of the places where we are confident. We need to be aware of those places of abundance. We need to be concerned of those places of plenty. We need to be skeptical of those places where it seems like we have enough. Because the coming of Christ will not be good news to those places. It wasn't good news at the first coming, and it certainly won't be good news when he comes the second time. That's why this Advent, as we walk together as a church, we're intentionally making space to carve ourselves out. But the earliest Christians to celebrate Advent knew this was the need. I, I know that the modern Advent week focuses are, are like love and hope and joy and peace or something like that. And that's all wonderful and great and we need and want those things. But when they started celebrating Advent, they knew that the only path to love, hope, peace, joy was through all that was not yet love, hope, peace, joy. That's why the medieval Advent week focuses, I'm not sure I've got the order exactly right, but they were something like death, judgment, hell, and then heaven, right? Line it up a little bit at the end. Because they knew that the filling only comes through carving. That's why we're carving out space this Advent for all of us to pray in desperation and to fast together to make us desperate. 
We're asking all of us to look under the festivity and frivolity of the season and to touch that ache that lies beneath because that ache is right where joy wells up when Christ comes and brings the revolution. Now, in terms of prayer, there is always opportunity to cry out for help with others here at IAC throughout the week, but there's specific opportunity on Sunday mornings. Because after every sermon, during every Eucharist, after every service, there are prayer ministers here to groan with you before the Father. I've just had such a conviction recently that so much healing is left on the table each week by prayer ministers standing alone. And if you're the kind of person who tends to think, you know, like other people probably have it worse than me. Or, you know, it's kind of embarrassing to come to the front. It's that kind of talk that has to die for grace to be received. There are ways that petty pride can hold us back from the joy we are aching for. Do not let it. In addition, the the next two Sunday nights, not tonight, but the next two Sunday nights, we're having two prayer meetings here in the sanctuary. And we're inviting everyone at IEC to join us for at least one of them because during that time, we're going to have no ultimate agenda, no strategic focus. We're just going to get together and we're going to cry out for help. We're going to open up the painful places and ask him to work. Now, in those times, you can pray by yourself or in groups. There are going to be prayer ministers available to pray for healing, to listen to confessions, to just pray silently over you in soaking prayer. But we're specifically inviting you to see that ache and to come and open it. And then each Friday of Advent, We're inviting you to fast, to carve out space that you may ache more deeply. Now, fasting is is something that can be sort of confusing for folks. Fasting is not about giving up something bad in your life, something you know that is bad for you. Like, I'm fasting from social media, like, because it's bad for me. That's not fasting. That's repentance. (laughs) Don't fast from sin. Stop it. Fasting is giving up something good, (laughs) giving up something that fills you so that you might become more empty before God. It's about placing yourself in, in a spot so you can be reminded that you do not have what it takes in yourself to live. You need something else outside of you to give you life because you need someone else outside you to give you life. In fasting, that ache of hunger or whatever it is that we feel, that good thing that we're missing, reminds us that our ultimate ache is for Him. And it draws our hearts to that place of desperation for Him. And we're going to be giving more detail about the prayer meetings and the fasting. Uh, They're going to come out in Wednesday notes this week, so if you're not signed up for IAC notes, I encourage you to go to the website under the resources tab and do that. But... I know this is wildly different than the rest of your Christmas preparations. I know in one ear you've got us here at church and the other you've got like Nat King Cole. (laughs) I know that Advent has become a long extended Christmas season. But friends, if we want joy, if we want to sing with Mary, the heights of our joy will match the depths of our need. This revolution of grace that comes in Christ, it's only good news for the needy. So may we be the humble and humiliated.
May we be the hungry. So that when he comes, we may be more deeply filled. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we would sing with your earthly mother. We would rejoice with her joy. But we need your help. By your Holy Spirit, would you come and carve out space within us to receive this good news? Would you come by your Holy Spirit and conceive life in us, your life? For our sake and for the sake of this world, which so desperately needs you. Would you come? Would you come and graft us into this song? Amen.